0: I'm very excited to have uh, Jonah Ludmere here today. So Jonah did his um, internal medicine and pediatrics training, I think both at uh, University of Pennsylvania before coming down here to Maryland to do his training in cardiology and completed his cards fellowship here. After completing his cards fellowship, Jonah went to Stanford to do his critical care training um, and is now up in Boston working as a cardiology critical care provider up in Boston. We're lucky enough to have Jonah here with us today, and he's gonna talk to us some about the evolution of cardiac critical care, which I think is critically important as we do a fair bit of the management of the patients in the CCU, and we're starting to have more cardiologists come through the critical care training track. Um, So Jonah, I'm really happy to have you here today. I'm very glad you could join us and share your expertise with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. It's really a a pleasure to be here, Um, and I wish I could be there uh, talking and meeting all of you. Um, Before I start, I just want to just give a shout out to all of my training at Maryland. This is a picture of my co-fellows, co-cardiology fellows right before we graduated. It was uh, three really amazing years, and I am incredibly grateful for all of the training and mentorship and friendship I developed there. So I have no disclosures. So today, the key question I want to pose and answer is, why is it important for an intensivist to staff the cardiac intensive care unit? And I'm gonna address this question by going through these objectives. One, I'm gonna discuss the scope of cardiac critical care, give a little historical context, talk about the CCU of the 60s and the CICU of today. We'll talk about how you can successfully develop a cardiac intensivist program how you can train in cardiac critical care, and then finally highlight a couple areas of research. So let's jump back to the early 1960s. This is Desmond Julian, who was a physician uh, who was working in Edinburgh, and he was a very creative person, and he presented to the British Thoracic Society in, in 1961, and he said the following, the provision of appropriate apparatus, very fancy language, would not be prohibitively expensive if these patients were admitted to special intensive care units and such units would be staffed by suitably experienced people throughout the 24 hours. And he proposed four key points to having a successful CCU. He said, one, you need continuous EKG monitoring and there has to be an alarm system. Two, you have to be able to do rapid CPR and defibrillation. Three, you need people who know what they're doing to manage the equipment. And four, you need skilled nurses. So this kind of obviously makes sense to us now, but this was very novel at that time. Here's an example of a case uh, in the early days of the CCU. So a man of 40 was admitted with a four hour history of chest pain. There was no cath lab then. There was really no treatment for acute coronary syndrome. Within a few minutes of admission, he fell back in his bed, pulseless, unconscious. Respiration ceased. The chest was opened after the onset of the episode and cardiac massage was begun. Pretty extreme case. Let's contrast that to the CICU of today. And this looks like, you know, University of Maryland, MGH, a lot of academic centers function in this way. We still have those four key points that Dr. Julian proposed. We still have continuous monitoring, rapid ability to do CPR, skilled personnel, skilled nurses, and so much more. And we've really gone from the coronary observation unit of the 1960s to this intensive care unit that cares for very complex cardiovascular patients with multi-organ dysfunction and requirement of mechanical circulatory support. And really, we are at the hybrid, at the middle of what a MICU and the traditional kind of CCU is because we have to be able to handle everything that happened in the traditional CCU, everything that can happen in the MICU or SICU even, and be able to manage the complexities. So let me give an example of a case I recently saw about two months ago, 66 year old man who had alcoholic cirrhosis and Crohn's, he was admitted with decompensated cirrhosis, was worked up and expedited, and had a liver transplantation. Prior to the transplant, he had a stress echo, a dobutamine stress, which showed a normal baseline echo and no evidence of ischemia. In the post-operative period, he developed severe biventricular dysfunction and when they called me as part of the ECMO shock team, the patient was already on pretty high dose epinephrine, dobutamine, norepinephrine and vasopressin. His thick cardiac index was a dismal 1.6 and he had a PA saturation of 43%, not good. This is his bedside echo here. So this is a parasternal long. Here's the LV, here's the RV mitral valve, a glimpse of the aortic valve and you can see LV is not really moving, RV also not very good. This is an apical four-chamber LV-RV, again, demonstrated biventricular dysfunction. This is a subcostal view, images are a little bit better, LV-RV, again, uh, biventricular dysfunction. So decision was made to put him on VA ECMO, This is a TE at the the time of ECMO cannulation, so left ventricle, right ventricle, mitral, tricuspid valve, again demonstrating severe biventricular dysfunction. And so cannulated for via ECMO for about two days. We tend to transition pretty early on to a biventricular uh, support support strategy if needed, or just uh, univentricular support, but we like to get people off ECMO early to avoid some of its complications. So within two days, transition to an Impella and protect Duo, and I'll explain that momentarily. Within another two to three days, the Protec Duo, which is a right ventricular support device, was um, decannulated. And then within a week, Impella was gone, and he actually recovered completely so our thought process initially was like, could this be ischemia post MI? He didn't have anything pre-op, um, and it was a pretty severe, um, uh, pretty severe biventricular dysfunction. So we really thought this was kind of an acute stress cardiomyopathy. So just a couple, uh, a couple one to two minutes on percutaneous ventricular support devices. So this has really become uh, what a lot of institutions use. Many um, of you are familiar with the Impella. So the original one, um, the 2.5 and then the CP that can give you three and a half liters per minute of cardiac output support. And this one um, is kind of the, the strongest, the best one we have now. It's an Impella 5.5, which does require a surgical cutdown because it's inserted through the axillary artery. The Impella sits across the aortic valve And what happens is blood is pulled in to here and then delivered in the aorta, and you um, essentially provide left ventricular sided support. It is a wonderful device, obviously has complications, but it can give you a ton of support. And the nice thing about this, it is in the arm, so it doesn't obstruct the legs or anything in the femoral region. Again, this is only left sided support. These are the two um, main percutaneous RV support devices outside of ECMO that we have. On uh, the left here is the Impella RP, which um, I know we used once or twice when I was at Maryland. I've used it once or actually twice in the last two years um, at, at my current job. And the issue with the Impella RP is that you have to insert it femorally and you see, it makes a sharp turn across the tricuspid valve, up the pulmonic valve, and it basically takes the blood from the IVC, it delivers it in the pulmonary artery, bypassing the RV. The problem is, it is incredibly positional, and more often than not, it falls right out of the pulmonic valve, and you're just circulating blood into the RV. A newer device um, is called the Protec Duo. And this is a nice device because you can insert it right into the right IJ or left IJ if needed. And what it does is it takes the blood from the right atrium and it delivers it into the pulmonary artery. So it can bypass the RV and give you right ventricular support. And if needed, this can also act as a VV ECMO circuit because you can attach an oxygenator to this device. So going back to this uh, patient I was talking about, so this is post-Impella and post-Protec removal, and you can see in this apical four-chamber, resolution of his biventricular dysfunction, normal LV, normal RV. The man went home, his liver is functioning well, and he has not had any further cardiac issues. Okay, so back to the initial question. Does an intensivist in the CICU really make a difference? The short answer is yes. So let's go through some data to support this. So I'm gonna go back um, about 20 or so years to this really important systematic review by Dr. Pronovost in JAMA. And what he did here is he put together all the studies that had both high intensity and low intensity coverage in the ICU. Low intensity units meant that they were often open in nature, so not staffed by an intensivist. High intensity were either staffed by an intensivist or a closed unit. And across the board, pretty much, those ICUs that had ICU intensivist coverage, the patients did better. Mortality decreased. Now, how about specifically in the cardiac intensive care unit? So this was uh, an important study in 2016 from Jack, General of American College of Cardiology. And this was a study done in South Korea, in Seoul, in one of their very large medical centers, Samsung Medical Center. And what they did is they compared a um, pre and post period. In their initial period, so the low intensity period, the CICU was staffed by a cardiologist and residents. In the high intensity period, the CCU was staffed by that same team plus a cardiac intensivist, And the cardiac intensivists at this hospital were trained in not only critical care, but also in interventional cardiology. And they had a general intensivist. So there was a lot of ICU um, support. And what we see here is comparative between the low and high intensity coverage models. Mortality decreased. There was no change in readmission, but there is a significant change both propensity and non-propensity matched in CICU and hospital mortality. And just to drive the the point home further, because I like this uh, figure, 2013 is when they made the switch over to the high-intensity model. And again, what we see is that mortality decreased after 2013, not only in the CICU, but across the board during hospitalization. And that was both cardiovascular-related mortality And non-cardiovascular-related mortality. Okay, so let's jump to a really important study, Um, and Mike McCurdy spearheaded this study, as did many of our colleagues at Maryland. Haran Kapoor, who was a resident at the time, who's now a cardiology fellow, um, also uh, was incredibly involved and first author here. So this was a collaborative cardiologist-intensive management model, and how it improved. CCU outcomes. So when I was at Maryland, uh, perhaps my first year, we still had mandatory critical care consults for vented CCU patients. Uh, Starting my second year, that kind of fell out of favor. Third year really wasn't there. I'm not sure what's happening today. But what this study did is it compared vent-free days, length of stay, charges and mortality pre and post intensivist mandatory consult. And there were some amazing findings here. One, the patients that had an intensivist involved had less time on the vent. Makes sense. Cardiologists are not intensivists and are not um, savvy with the ventilator. Some are, not all. The length of stay decreased significantly with the intensivist involvement. The hospital length of stay decreased. And there is cost savings, significant cost savings. Mortality did not change. So, to drive home these points, intensivists in the CICU at Maryland resulted in a decreased time on the ventilator, great for the patients. Decreased length of stay, great for the patients. Decreased cost, Great for the patients and great for the hospital. So it's really a win win across the board. So now that I've reviewed some of the data for why having an intensivist really ma- matters, let's talk about how you create a cardiac intensivist program. So I really think there are a couple key points to having a successful cardiac intensivist program. One, having a group of multidisciplinary critical care providers. While I'm a cardiologist and intensivist, I really do value and feel there is so much to learn and so much high quality care we can provide using physicians from all across the board, cardiac anesthesia critical care, uh, EM critical care, IM critical care, neurocritical really everything as um, all of you fellows at Maryland have so many diverse backgrounds. I think having those backgrounds are important to having a successful cardiac intensivist model. I think it is crucial to have 24-7 coverage. We can argue about the data, about the merits of an intensivist or attending overnight, but I think for a successful cardiac program where you have a lot of ECMO and you have a lot of MCS devices, you need an intensivist who's experienced to help troubleshoot. I think it's important to have a group that covers the whole span of cardiac critical care, not only in the CICU, but also the cardiovascular cardiac surgery ICU and really handling the MCS patients. And I do think there is a value to staffing an ECMO or shock team. This is a survey that was done in 2016 for about 600 or so CCUs across the country and it was quite interesting because across the board, about three quarters of all CICUs were still open. There was no intensivist, there was no single cardiologist. It was whoever wanted to admit, they could admit. In terms of the patient population, it was pretty mixed. Only 8% of them were just CICU patients. All the other ones were mixed, either between a MICU CICU hybrid, a CICU cardiac surgery hybrid, CCU-SICU, And this was also very interesting. What percentage of CICUs were staffed by a cardiac intensivist? Out of all those 600 plus hospitals, only 14.7% were staffed by a cardiac intensivist. What about a shock team? This is a prototype from the University of Utah that has a um, a great program. And they published how their ECMO slash shock team works. So um, this is primarily during daytime hours. During nighttime hours, only one person is on call. But if you, or really anyone in the emergency room on the floor in an ICU has a suspicion for a cardiogenic shock, they page the team. And the team is comprised of a heart failure cardiologist, a heart failure cardiothoracic surgeon, an interventional cardiologist, and the CVICU attendant. And amongst the four people, they decide what do we do? Do we go to the cath lab? Do we just go to the unit? Do we go to the OR for something emergent? Using the shock team model at the University of Utah uh, led to a decrease in mortality. So there was a significant difference in survival when you had this approach, this multidisciplinary approach. So how about at Mass General, where where I've been working for the last two years? We have a integrated multidisciplinary heart center model. And our ICUs, and we have two ICUs, the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit and the Cardiac Surgery Intensive Care Unit, staffed by 14 cardiac intensivists 24/7, of which six of us are cardiac anesthesia critical care trained. There is one EM, critical care provider. There are five cardiology critical care providers. There's one anesthesia critical care, and there's one cardiac surgeon who's also an intensivist. And the MGH Heart Center ICU provides, like I said, 24-7 in-house coverage with the attending, with advanced practice provider support, fellow support sometimes, and residents on elective. We also staff the ECMO shop team 24-7, and we collaborate very closely with the surgeons and on any heart failure patient, so anyone pre or post transplant and many of the MCS patients, we co-round in the mornings with the heart failure team. So it's a very collaborative environment with the intensivist as kind of the leader of the team. Wanted to share a a couple other kind of neat things that we have. One is our Heart Center ICU ECMO app. Um, You are all welcome to explore it. And we've really used it for um, people within our uh, hospital, but really our whole hospital system in New England. And basically what it has is it has all of our guidelines. It helps triage whether or not people need ECMO, a direct uh, phone number right to whoever's carrying the phone. and transport information. We've also integrated into an ACLS app that a lot of the residents use. So we like when people think about ECMO early. And uh, as part of the app, um, when we ask people to call us is when CPR is just starting, when it's a witness arrest, uh, BMI less than 40, age less than 70. Um, But bottom line is, we ask, especially the emergency room, just call us. We are always there, and we're always there to help troubleshoot and figure out if a patient should be cannulated. The other important thing that we offer is a lot of education. So we have a lecture series, a grand round series. We love residents not only from MGH but really anywhere who want to visit and rotate with us. We have a variety of fellows that train with us, the cardiac surgery surgery fellows, Pulmcrit, SICU, other general critical care fellows, anesthesia. We have research fellows, and we have a a recently designed specialized critical care fellowship primarily for cardiology fellows. But we do have, um, actually this year, a pulmonary fellow who's gonna be spending extensive amount of time with us. Okay, so we talked about the scope. We talked about how to design a program. So how do you train in cardiac critical care? Now I'm gonna highlight a couple things for cardiology fellows. However, I do wanna say that there is opportunity for general critical care fellows. The paths are really cardiology critical care, cardiac anesthesia critical care, or really palm crit or IM crit or EM crit, all those pathways you can specialize and gain more experience in cardiovascular critical care, as many of you have or will at Maryland. So this um, was one of the first documents for cardiology, and there are different levels of training. One is kind of the basics, which doesn't really have much critical care training outside of your CCU time, to kind of an extra one-year critical care fellowship. And the idea for someone practicing cardiac critical care is that you have the general procedural and knowledge skills with critical care. You have skills that you need from cardiology to have this kind of hybrid skill set to provide good, high-quality care in a CICU environment. This is an example of a pathway for those in cardiology, but I think it also does apply to those in medicine or EM that want to integrate critical care and cardiovascular critical care. And um, Maryland is an amazing, amazing critical care training program. Um, There are a lot of opportunities, as as you know, on ERAS for just uh, general critical care fellowships, so not palm crit or not surgical or anesthesia, but it really gives uh, people the opportunity to train um, and, and specialize even in cardiac So let me just finish a little bit on research, and then I really want to make this a conversation because I think we can learn a lot from each other. There's a lot of new research out there. The field of cardiovascular critical care is still in its infancy, and there are a lot of neat things going on. There is a critical care cardiology trials network um, that was really started out of the Brigham, and there is a lot of registry data that's being collected. There are so many opportunities in the MCS, the mechanical story support front. Quality improvement. How do we staff the unit? What do we do in certain situations? What happens at nighttime? Do we have algorithms in cardiac critical care? There's so many things we need to still explore. And then kind of my personal um, niche in, in research is family-centered care. And family-centered care, as many of you know, um, is an approach to deliver holistic, supportive, emotional care to families uh, when their loved one is in distress. And this became a challenge, as you know, during COVID, because for many, many months, no one could enter. So I asked, so how can we adapt? And many of you thought about this too. How can we adapt uh, when we can't even have families there? And the truth is there's so many things that we can do and we continue to do. So one of the things we did was we just transitioned to virtual. So I would round and I continue to do this because I think it's incredibly beneficial with a tablet and I Zoom the family members every day. And um, what's nice about this and even better than pre-COVID is that I could include, you know, patient's brother from Boston, the sister lives in California, the uncle that lives in Canada, and you really have this family presence, often international, at the bedside. And it's been remarkable. We've been doing a lot of family meetings virtually, which is an extra challenge in the cardiovascular intensive care unit because there's so many stakeholders, not just the intensivist, but there is also the surgeon, the heart failure doc and other consultants. And this has really allowed so many consultants Uh, to be present at the same time. So I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about my personal journey, because for me, everything started at Maryland and everything started in the CCU. And I fell in love with the complexity and the fast-paced environment. And that really prompted me to do dedicated critical care training and then do what I'm doing now. But um, I do have to thank two incredible faculty members at Maryland, uh, Mike, who's on the call and Giora Netzer, Mike and Giora are um, outstanding, not only clinicians, but researchers and have been my mentors since the beginning and continue to be lifelong mentors. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of their support and for really helping me figure out my next steps and um, still pushing me to explore further. So thank you, Mike, who's on the call. um, And thank you, Giora So to summarize, and then we can do question and answer. One, a cardiac intensive model can improve outcomes, it decreases length of stay, and it saves costs. I think multidisciplinary collaboration is key across cardiac ICUs. There are so many training programs out there, and even if there's no dedicated cardiac intensive care program, most academic centers give you the opportunity to spend ample time in the CCU or MCS environment. Some places are doing non-ACGME accredited extra years at ECMO or MCS, um, which is fantastic. And finally, this is growing and it's further developing and it's an exciting time in cardiac critical care. And really, I I, um, wanna ask all the fellows on the call, please don't hesitate to reach out. I am always available to talk about this if you're interested not only clinically, but from a research perspective. Um, if you're thinking about different jobs, this, the job market for cardiac intensive care is really growing because so many programs are trying to build this approach up. So thank you again. Thank you to all the cardiology faculty that trained me, the critical care faculty that not only trained me, but mentored me, all of the fellows I trained with, all of the nurses that I got to work with. Um, This is a picture from my fellowship graduation three years ago. Um, So thank you. Here's my email. And I will stop there and open it up for questions.